draw your attention back to Ephesians 6 this morning. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. We'll read a few verses here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Let's pray. Our most gracious and wise, powerful Heavenly Father, we are mindful this morning of our weakness, of our inabilities. To stand against our enemy. Lord, we pray that we would take up the whole armor of God that is provided for us. that we might stand in the power of the Lord and the strength of His might, that we might stand against this enemy that is before us. Lord, teach us from Your Word this morning. May the Holy Spirit guide and direct our, our hearts and our thoughts and our... Give us discernment, Lord, to understand and to know what You are teaching us through your word that you've given to us this morning. We ask these things in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, this may very well be the most difficulty I've ever had in preparing a sermon. Maybe it's the the weight of what Paul is telling us as he draws us uh, to the close of his epistle here, when he comes to his finally, or possibly the subject matter that he's speaking about here, something that I think we often have just a very surface level understanding of. Maybe it's the mystery 
that is the unknown that surrounds the subject matter of what Paul is speaking about. We don't have the clarity on this matter that we have clarity in in other matters that is brought before us in Scripture. Maybe it's all the above. And I would say that's probably what it is. But I pray that God this morning, the God of all wisdom, will assist us through the person of His Holy Spirit so that we would have over these next few weeks, which I think we'll, we'll spend looking at some of this, we'll have discernment and wisdom as we try to understand what it is that Paul has been inspired, inspired to write for us here in Ephesians 6 and in this 6th chapter towards the end. We'll be focusing on three verses this morning, verses 10 and 11, 10, 11, and 12. Here is, as this whole, you probably have a pericope heading in your Bible that says the whole armor of God, uh, the greater section, but we'll be focusing mainly on the three first verses of this particular section, verse 10, 11, and 12. Here it's made known to us in God's holy word, and I believe that we have some knowledge of this by our own personal experience as Christians that we're engaged in a battle. And it's prudent that if we're engaged in a battle that we know something about our enemy that we're engaged in this battle with. I think this is partially what our Savior alluded to in Luke, in Luke 14, 31. In that passage, our Lord is speaking about the cost of discipleship and leaving him talking about leaving everything to follow him. And he says something in the context of that passage there in Luke 14 that I believe has application here for us this morning. He says, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he, has, he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Well, are we able to meet the enemy on the battlefield? We must know something of his enemy if we are to go out and, and array ourselves for battle against him. We are to know something about our enemy, something about his strength, something about his number, something about the area in which this battle must take place. Because of the fact that Paul states this as something that is as if it's a given. It's not a question about whether or not this is something that we wrestle against. It's not, hey, you might wrestle against this. You might battle against this. Paul basically states this as an emphatic statement. We wrestle. We fight. We battle against. Because of that, we must, without giving him too much a place in our mind, know about our enemy and those who serve him, that we might be prepared for the attacks that will come. And we must then be ready and trained in the armor and the tools given to us by God for this occasion. I remember reading 
something that Sproul had to say. I think it was in an article somewhere regarding Satan. He had a class that he was teaching that had 30 people in this class. And the first thing that he asked the class was, asked them to raise their hands. And he asked them, do you believe in God? And all 30 people in the class, hands went right up in the, in the air. And then he asked, do you believe in Satan? Out of the 30 people in the classroom that believed in God, only three raised their hands. Only three. And finally, after, after talking and discussing this a little bit, one of the students that was in this classroom, and I don't know where it was, I don't know if this was at when, when he was a professor in one of the colleges or one of the sem- I, I I would hope that people in seminary, there'd be a greater than three out of 30 raise their hands if asked if they believed in Satan. But one of the students said, you mean are we to believe in a Satan that wears a red suit and has these pointy horns and carries a pitchfork? Because that is what they were referencing in their mind when they thought about Satan. You see, that's what has become of all this in our world today. Satan in the minds of most is nothing more than a cartoonish character representing something that might lead us to a bad decision or bad behavior. Think about all the cartoons you've seen. The little angelic character on one shoulder and the little devilish character on the other. This is what what has become what people think of the forces of Satan, our enemy. That he's just some cartoonish, devilish character. The author, C.S. Lewis, if any of you have read the screw tape letters, in the screw tape letters, he has the main character is a demonic figure. And he's writing as a as way of an instru- instruction to another about how to deceive people. And listen, listen to what he says. He wrote in the screw tape letters from the vantage point of the demon, once again, instructing another on how to deceive people. And in this, this main character, this demon, says the fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, and then in parentheses, C.S. Lewis says, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, in parentheses, he therefore cannot believe in you. So Lewis is pointing to the fact that a comedic devil has contributed to the belief that the demonic power, the demonic person of Satan, does not exist. This is the case with many things, unfortunately, today scripturally. We see that they are weakened as a result of the way that we treat them. 
or we've grown just to not believe in something because of the way that they are treated. Think about Noah and the ark. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, how we portray often to our kids these cartoonish-like people, myths, but we don't support the reality that is revealed to us through the Word of God. So in doing that, we, they become nothing more than a fable, nothing more than a character. This has been a tool in the enemy's playbook. Well, we must know our enemy, and we must be armed in the armor that has been given to us, which is the only, and I'm going to say that again, it is the only effective method of standing against this enemy that we have. Keep in mind that the Ephesians probably had a much better understanding of this than we do today. They weren't so proud in their advanced and scientific minds to not believe in spiritual forces. They weren't so far advanced that they ignored the obvious cause of evils of what they saw, but they were enlightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so ought we to be enlightened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is telling us here this morning. This is, the, this is part of the gospel. I've said this before, say it again, I'm not doesn't originate with me by any stretch of the imagination, but the Christian is uniquely qualified to explain the evils that exist in this world. Uniquely qualified. We may not have everything figured out in terms of the evils that exist, in terms of our enemy or the hosts that follow our enemy. But we have the only true answer that exists to why evil exists and what it is doing in the world. But the Ephesians had a pretty good understanding of what was going on. Turn back to me. We've looked at this before. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 19. Remember what Paul is dealing with here. He's dealing with our enemy, Satan, and the powers under Satan, his spiritual host of wickedness. Look at verse 11. We'll start reading there in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of, hands of Paul. Now, I'm going to stop real quick and say once again what I said when we looked at this months and months and months ago. These were being done by the hand of Paul, but who was performing the miracles? God. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, 
I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva or Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. What does verse 17 then say? And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them. But that's not all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it was found to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. This was not some allusion to something that they might call or or say this this happened as a result of some chance or some sleight of hand or some trickery. What was this? This was demonic activity. This was not, once again, sleight of hand that was being performed here. This evil spirit leapt upon these seven sons, mastered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And fear overcame all of Ephesus. And the name of Jesus was extolled. They came to face to face, these Ephesians did. <clears throat> with what Paul calls rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and spiritual forces of evil. Well, let's begin and start to work our way through these three verses that we said we would look at here this morning. That we may know our enemy, but in correct view of our enemy's strength, may we be firmly resting in the strength of the Lord's might and what he has provided for us for this conflict. Paul begins in verse 10. He begins this section by calling attention to our Lord. Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It is like he's saying, we have now come to a close. We're drawing to a close here, church at Ephesus. Think of all that I've related to you about what God has done, what Christ has accomplished, and what the Holy Spirit has sealed up or guaranteed for you. Think about all of this and how this was done. Not of your works, but of grace. You have nothing to boast about in these things, but instead you can rest in what has been done on your behalf by the God who is overall the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. Well, 
let us think about all that God has shown us in his word. We take all of that in when Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Look at the strength of his might in all that he's done. From Genesis on, well, he parted the Red Sea. He brought a great flood that covered all the earth. He caused the Jordan River to stand up, didn't he? Strengthened Samson. Strengthened David. Fought Elijah's battle for him against the prophets of Baal. Stopped the mouths of lions. He allowed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by his power to live in a fiery furnace he did what seven times hotter that the people that threw them in died and he was even seen our lord a theophany of our lord jesus christ right there a christophany i should say there in the flames with shadrach meshach and abednego what power the strength of his might And through this strength we read earlier, look at chapter 1 of Ephesians verse 20, or 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of this power, of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? And then if we go down just a little bit, we see it again. In verse 5 of chapter 2, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He not only raised Christ, but he raised us up with him. He not only seated Christ at the right hand, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Behold the strength of his might. Hendrickson says it like this. He says, It is therefore as if Paul were saying, When I urge you to find your source of power in the Lord and in the strength of his might, I am not making an unreasonable request. For you yourselves know that his omnipotence has been revealed by these two marvelous deeds that we just looked at. There in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. Hence, we are not dealing with abstractions, but with the power of God demonstrated in human history. You are aware, therefore, of the fact that when you ask him to strengthen you, he will certainly hear you, for he is able to do infinitely more than all we ask or imagine. Isn't that what we've already learned from Ephesians 3, verse 20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Whose power? Ours? No. His power. The strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Therefore, Paul says in other places, in 1 
1 Corinthians 16.13, Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. And as Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Here's where our strength comes from. Here's where our everything comes from. It comes from Jesus Christ. Not in our strength, but the Lord's. As Paul would state to us in his second letter to the church at Corinth. Write this down and go back and read this over and over and over again. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. So to keep me, Paul is saying, from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he saw, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times, Paul says, he pleaded with the Lord about this, that it, be, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. What did he tell Paul? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, Paul says then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I stand not in my own strength, but in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Take no stock in the strength that you possess, Christian. As the hymn says, and I hope we will sing this in the coming weeks, there's a hymn that we sing, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Robert Murray McShane said it like this. Leaning on the staff of my own devising, it betrayed me and broke under me. It was not thy staff. Resolving to be a God, thou showest me that I was but a man. But my own staff being broken, why may I not lay hold of thine? Our strength is nothing. But knowing that we have no strength, God has provided for us the strength of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is then that Paul introduces in verse 11 the armor of God. Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This is not the only place in Scripture we read of some sort of armor for the Christian. 
Romans 13.12 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 10, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand, and for the left hand, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet as true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. With what did Paul say? With Weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. We have no weapons with which to war against this which the world doesn't see. This spiritual enmity. This enemy that we have against the enemy and his hosts. But what does Paul say these weapons of righteousness are? Purity. Knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God. If we but just listen to His Word, we would come to see that this message that the gospel gives us is one message. One message. This armor is pictured and typified for us in what I believe is an amazing historical record that we have in Nehemiah. I love, I love the book of Nehemiah. And I think that we have a picture here that applies, showing us a, fix, a, a, a physical picture of what I believe this looks like. If you go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah is sent to Judah to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And he's faced with opposition by evil men who have surrounded him as they are rebuilding the wall there in Jerusalem. And these evil men are following their evil leader. And I don't mean a physical evil leader. This is the same leader that we're to stand against, armed in the armor of God. Nehemiah sees the threat, and he gathers all the people together, all the leaders and all the people together, and he tells them, Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight. And then if you look at verse 15 of Nehemiah 4. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of, of Judah 
who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at the time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men on the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, and each kept his weapon at his right hand. Oh, do you see? Do you see what Paul means here in a spiritual sense to take up the armor of God? Put it on that you may stand. Yes, there's work to do. There's work to do, but do it while you are in the armor of God. Be ready for battle so that you aren't caught without that which is provided for you as defense against and offense against our enemy. Never find yourself naked against the onslaught of the wicked one. Never take off the armor of God. Be clothed in it. Always. Well, it is the armor of God, is it not? It's not His armor but it's that which He has prepared and fitted for us and provided for us for this conflict that we're engaged in. We have no armor of our own. It's His and it is from Him to us. And I will say that we must never be so naive as to think that I can just take a part of the armor. What does He tell us here? Paul says... You must put it all on. Put on the whole armor of God. And you must stand. We don't run away from our enemy. We don't give him our back. We are to stand before him and to stand against him, arrayed in the armor and the weapons that God has provided us for the conflict. To be able to stand against Him in the glorious strength of our Lord's might. We'll deal with this armor a little bit more in future weeks. But this is Paul's finally. He leaves us with this. Taking all that Paul has said and revealed to us about the excellency of God's power and His provision and His purpose. And Paul says, clothe yourself in these things, this armor of God. Look ahead for just a second. What are these things? Truth, 
Righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, spirit, the word of God. All these things that we may stand against the schemes of the devil so that we might not be overcome. No matter what his assault is, whether it's by force or by fraud or by deceit, no matter his method, we might withstand him clothed in the whole armor of God. Paul would have us to be aware of his methods, his schemes. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, what are some of these schemes? What are some of these schemes? There's, there's a few that we'll mention here this morning. And I think it, uh, these that we will mention covers most of everything else under an umbrella. But there are many schemes that the devil ha- has. But one of them is mixing error in with the truth. Mixing error in with the truth or mixing truth with error. We see this in the very beginning, don't we? In Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 1 through 3. Now the serpent was more crafty or prudent than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. What was it, in fact, that God said to Adam? Did Satan give a true and honest and untwisted version of what God said? Look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Do you see how subtle the difference is? It's just a little bit. Oh, but it's a grand difference. Did God really say you can't eat of any tree? When God in actuality said you can eat of any tree except one. He begins to mix truth with error. Another scheme is quoting Scripture. Quoting Scripture. And I'll put this in with this as well because there's an example of it in the same passage Satan not only quotes Scripture, but Satan will come to us when we are weak or hungry. When when the body is in need and the flesh by nature of its constitution is weak. We see this in the encounter when Jesus was tempted, don't we? Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. This scheming one Paul directs us against in our epistle. After Jesus was in the, in the wilderness and, and fasting for 40 days, he was hungry, the scripture tells us. 
And the tempter came to him, the devil. Satan came and tempted him through his hunger. Matthew 4.3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus, you can just eat. You've been hungry for 40 days. You fasted for 40 days. Just make these stones become loaves of bread. Yet Christ, using God's Word, stood against Satan. Then Satan quotes Scripture. Matthew 4, 6. And Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus again stands against him by going to the Word of God in its proper context. He is the Word of God. He is. Another scheme is Satan representing himself as a messenger of light and his servants doing the same. This may very well be the greatest of all schemes and the easiest for our enemy because of the origin of them, which we'll seek to look at, Lord willing, next week. But in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen through 15, And no wonder, Paul says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is why I believe that Paul addresses the church in Galatia. You have to remember what was going on in the church in Galatia. where, And this leads to the other scheme that we'll get to in just a second. But in the church in Galatia, what was happening? The Jewish converts there were what? So in trying to go back to Judaism, back to the law. So Paul tells them, but even if we are an angel from heaven, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary the one that, than the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. And the last scheme I'll mention that corresponds somewhat with that is the scheme to lead people to believe that salvation is based on what they do. This has always been a scheme of our enemy. You remember there in Matthew 7 when Jesus was speaking on that day, many will come to me, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Satan, one of his schemes is to lead the unarmored to believe that they may rest in what they do instead of what the Savior has already done. His schemes are many. These are but a few. But his schemes are many. His power, what did we sing? His power and wisdom are great when measured against us and our abilities. It is imperative then that the Christian put on the whole armor of God. Paul then concludes 
and what I will say is enlarging the case before us. Having put before the Ephesians and us our need of finding our strength in the Lord and being clothed in the armor of God, he has put before us then the captain of the enemy, Satan, but also the imposing force which stands against us underneath that captain. Paul goes on, Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul doesn't even begin to belittle or to downplay or to devalue the strength of the host at our opposing captain's command. At the very outset, God tells us the full measure of it as the Holy Spirit gives Paul and tells Paul through, to give us by inspiration and write to us the very worst of it. This is the opposite way of, of the way in which Satan works. He would hide things from us. God reveals to us our enemy. One of his chief weapons in the world is ignorance of God. One of his chief weapons in the world is ignorance of God. This is his chief goal, to blind the world from seeing God. And it is only once that has been defeated that these other schemes that we talked about already even come into play. He doesn't have to worry about those schemes if you don't believe there's a God. But here God, by the pen of the Apostle Paul, sets before us the whole matter at the very outset. From Genesis through Revelation, God has revealed to us that our enemy is Satan and who it is that comprises Satan's army. He sets before us in truth the schemes that are employed by him, their plans, their strengths. All of this he sets before us, the truth of it if we just take heed to his word. We can know the ploys of our enemy. He would have us to know this. And Paul says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is close combat. This is face to face. It's often solitary. The Christian against the devil and his hosts. Satan's sharpest, sharpest tactics often come when the Christian's alone. Think about this and see if this isn't true in your own life. Often when the Christian is alone and shut up in his own house, seemingly secure. This is often when the saint of God is most vulnerable to satanic attack. He's let his guard down. Taken off the armor to rest. Tired and weary of this fight that he's engaged in. In the comfort of his own home. And then the attack comes. You ever felt that? The nature is also this. 
that armies may fight at a distance, but wrestling is up close and personal. It's hand-to-hand. It's body against body. Up close, very, very personal. And our enemy knows all our moves. Knows them all. He is not, and I, I want to repeat this, he is not omniscient. Our enemy is not omniscient. But he is wise, he is prudent, and he and his host have centuries and millennia of fighting against the people of God, blinding man in sin. It's given him great insight into our weaknesses. He knows by observation observation, the sufferings of our flesh. He knows our desires. He knows our fears because we're no different than other human beings throughout history. And he's observed this time and time and time again. This is not like us fighting an enemy for the course of my life and then we both die. This enemy has been here since the very beginning. And he was a murderer from the beginning. He was there when Adam and Eve were created. Obviously, he was there during the fall. He has been roaming about, seeing every sin. He knows us. He knows how we fight. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. He knows our fears. He knows that which makes us happy, and he'll use that against us. I want you to know that it's not that the Christian doesn't have battles that are of the flesh. We battle against our own flesh, battle against the flesh of those people that we interact on a daily basis, but this is not primarily what we wrestle against. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our true battle is what is behind that which we often see in the flesh. Let me try and explain that. We're fools if we think that our battle is with the lost person who's our boss at work. Or if, if, we're, if our battles are against the lost people in our family. Or if the battle is even against our rulers in our government. Yes, there is a sense in which we battle against those things. But that's not the primary cause of our conflict. They are doing what pleases their master. What did we read in our congregational reading from John? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do that which pleases your father. They're but doing, those that are of the flesh that we deal with, that we battle against, are but doing that which is their Father's will. So in reality, it's not them that we fight against, 
but against those who control them and all his spiritual forces that are behind the rule of this world. These are the strongholds that God has given us spiritual weapons to fight against. This is what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. Be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Why are there strongholds in this world? Why do people have the ideologies that they have? Because they're led by their father, the devil. We can't fight against them in the way that we would fight against flesh. That's not what our spiritual weapons are for. We have only one solution. One way in which to achieve victory. I'll quote again the words to that hymn. Stand up, for, stand up for Jesus, stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you, you dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. We can't stand against our enemy in our own flesh. Not even as a Christian can we stand against our enemy in our flesh. We must be strong in the Lord and the power of His might and put on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the only way. Well, next week, Lord willing, we'll return and look more at this and we'll seek to discover the origin of our enemy and his fall. I ask you for your prayers in this. Much that I'll seek to bring forward may not be what you've always held or heard. I'm not going to make this thing a matter of a dogmatic assertion that we'll look at. But I believe that they'll help us to understand who it is that opposes us and why he opposes us. And why it's imperative. And why Paul says what he says about who we must be clothed in. Jesus Christ. That we must stand in the power of of our Lord. Why we must be clothed in this armor that he talks about here by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this letter to the Ephesians. If you want to spend some extra time this week in the Word, I'd invite you to read Isaiah 14. In particular, verses 12 through 15. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 17. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 17. And if you have 
time again, read what we read in our congregational reading from John 8, 39 through 44 in particular. This is exhortation for the Christian. What we talked about today. There are some who don't have this armor. They're not a child of God. They will not survive this battle. They won't stand against the devil and his host. They won't be able to stand in judgment before a thrice holy God dressed in filthy rags. Part of that armor is salvation. Part of that armor is faith. Part of that armor is righteousness. Part of that armor is the gospel. It is a sad thing to neglect the salvation of your soul. Tell others about the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. That they may be clothed in His strength. That they might be clothed in armor that they might be clothed in His righteousness to stand before God and be pleasing to God, not because of what they've done, but because of what He's already done. Here's how we know. Here's how we know that we are going to make it through our battle in this world. He's already overcome the world. Share that with others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all those provisions that you've made for us who are a desperately needy people. We thank you that we have armor to stand against the devil and all his hosts. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ. Thank you for his shed blood. We thank you that before the foundation of the world, you placed us in him. Be with us through this week and may we have an opportunity to share this great hope, this great gift, this great grace with others. Be with us through this week, Lord. May we meditate upon your word. May we find strength in it. It's the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.